Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an OSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, businesses, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. We have noticed that perhaps training for, for judges, um, it has been interesting for them to see in domestic violence, to hear someone in their home in a very vulnerable place, potentially still in danger, asking for relief from the court. Um, we, did, we had a case where um, the filer was presenting to the judge uh, what had happened and that they were in danger and they were rushing the judge through the hearing and the judge said, I have to cover these questions. Just let me go through this process. There's a, there's a series of questions and eventually the, the abuser was at the door, banging at the door. And so there was this urgency of, oh, okay, this is what's happening. And so to have that lens into, into the home, um, I think it's been interesting for everyone to just kind of learn and really have a, a sense of what we're dealing with, a better sense of what we're dealing with. And we are absolutely uh, delighted and pleased to have two participants with us today to talk a little bit uh, about the court system and, and some of the creative response that's going on in trying to deal with the COVID crisis. First, we have uh, Rita Blandino, who's the director of the Domestic Violence Division for the District of Columbia Courts. Uh, so welcome, Rita. And then we also have uh, Paul Tottle, who's the assistant clerk for the Massachusetts Court of Appeals, which is uh, the primary intermediate appellate court there in uh, the, not the state, but the Commonwealth uh, of Massachusetts. So uh, it's it's delightful to have you both. Um, I'll just go right into it. I wanna talk, give people a little bit of a, of a glance into how the pandemic uh, affected your court. So um, just to, just to begin our discussion of this, and I'll turn to you, Rita, first about when when that, when that the seriousness of this pandemic started to hit, how did that really kind of affect your ability to do what the courts are supposed to do, particularly the domestic violence court? Sure, thank you, Father Pius. Um, so domestic violence just automatically creates a sense of urgency, right? The work that we do in that division um, is critical. It's There's always an emergency. And so when the city locked down, the, the trains stopped operating and eventually the court had to scale back and, and eventually uh, shut its doors to some degree. Um, our, our, our duty immediately was to find a way to operate remotely, right? There was no lag time. It was just from one day to the next, we had to have a way to have people access protection orders and have emergency hearings on the same day. And, um, and in a court environment, in, in the legal environment, we automatically look at the past to determine how to move forward, right? We look at case law, statute, the rules, right? Where has this happened before and how do we proceed? And we did not have that in this situation. So it, it required a lot of forward thinking, which is not natural. Um, certainly for, for most people at the court, um, fortunately the executive leadership is very innovative and, and we've been in a very creative environment in the last few years, which is why we're able to pivot pretty quickly and use the tools that we already had in place. But it was, it was moving so quickly to shift and recreate a court system essentially, just virtually, um, was, was really challenging. And the DC courts has about 10,000 visitors a day. So the idea that we had to provide access for that many people, um, it, it, was, it, was, it was challenging. Um, I'm proud to say we don't really have a lot of uh, those things in the way right now. We're operating a lot of our functions, but, but it's been an incremental process to get there. Uh, and, and even with the DC sorts, the, the DC courts, you're dealing not just with this isn't a closed community, but this is a community that's serving another one. Uh, that is, you've got to think about those stakeholders that are involved in there and coordinate with them a little bit as well. Can you just talk about that just very briefly sort of talk about that aspect? 
Yes, particularly in the domestic violence division, we've, since our inception, we've worked really closely with stakeholders to almost um, pass along, right, the clients. Uh, they First they meet with an advocate and they talk to an attorney and they get to the court. There's always been this like relay process um, in, in domestic violence with the stakeholders. And so um, we actually leaned on each other when in March when this all started and huddled and said, how do we continue to do what we've been doing virtually? And so that's part of the reason why we've been able to sustain the operations. Um, it was leveraging those partnerships and um, just trying to mirror what we were doing on site virtually. So, so yes, we, we respond to the community and we work really closely with the advocates and the uh, stakeholders to, um, to really get a pulse of what the need is in the community. And so that was critical to be able to, to, to pivot to remote operations and sustain and, and continue to operate like we have been. And now, Paul, up, up a little bit north up there in Massachusetts, uh, when the pandemic started hitting the appellate court up there, um, you know, how did how did that hit you guys, and and what were the initial sort of thoughts and reactions up there? Sure. So when the courthouse had to close in mid March, we were luckily in a pretty good position regarding the um, the digitization of the court. Our Chief Justice Mark Green and, and our assistant clerk, I'm sorry, and our clerk Joseph Stanton uh, were really committed to uh, a digital future for the court and to, um, to to make decisions with data driving the uh, driving the decision making. But um, we weren't set up to work remotely, and so our IT folks were committed to making that happen so that we could securely access the documents and keep them secure um, and keep the network secure. But in the clerk's office, uh, we had one area that we weren't, we hadn't made really any progress uh, with technology and that was serving our self-represented litigants. Um, a lot of times as the intermediate appellate court, we end up being the court of last resort um, following an adverse outcome in a trial court. And we'd had a significant increase in uh, eviction cases prior to the pandemic reaching our court where the litigant was in the housing court, sought a stay pending, sought a stay of the eviction, um, was denied in the housing court, and then was coming to us mere hours before the truck was going to get there. And our response up until you know March 16th or whatever the last day uh, we were all operating as normal was was to hand them the litigant uh, a yellow pad of paper, explain to them um, what they needed to show the justice of the appeals court in order to get an ex parte order of relief um, because they weren't going to be appearing in front of the judge. Uh, they'd sit down at a table with that pen and that paper, uh, do the best they could. We'd be there to answer questions for them. So when we weren't going to be in the office anymore. Um, when we couldn't be in the office anymore, we, we were really concerned that we were leaving these people without uh, without any sort of su support, not knowing, you know, what was going to happen with moratoria and other issues. Um, so that was something that we in the clerk's office especially focused on trying to uh, rectify. Yeah, I mean, people have to keep that in mind. I mean, these people, when they're at the, your appellate court, you're their, you're their last option. These people are at a fairly desperate situation. And when your only model is that kind of in-person, face-to-face encounter with those uh, self-represented litigants, um, you, and COVID hits, and there's no possibility for that, you've got to look to other opportunities. Actually, and you tried a way for, I mean, the Google Forms, I think you said, uh, was just sort of your first stab at trying to, to recreate that experience. But uh, how did that go? 
So yeah, so we I'd heard about folks using guided interviews to try and create uh, legal filings uh, for self-represented people. So I downloaded a Google Forms uh, suite and uh, a third-party extension that you hook into that to uh, create an output that could be filed in in, in the court case and. Um, besides the products not being very uh, polished, I also put myself on the list for lots of salespeople um, for <laughs> software. Always a danger. But eventually you, you found a, a partner. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I want, I want to go first back to uh, Rita. Now, now that we've given the sort of the crisis, especially in, in, in the domestic violence courts, and that need to react quickly and an inability almost to do so in uh, a COVID environment where you can't meet face to face, how then did you, does your court fi finally able to, to address the situation and continue to do the work that is so desperately needed? I think that we were able to envision um, just what we have today, this virtual operation. We, we're doing everything. We've been doing trials right now um, virtually. Um, we were able to envision that because we, are, we were already ahead of the curve um, in the domestic violence division. We, are, we were already doing uh, hearings remotely uh, with people at a satellite office um, in, in a, a quadrant of the city um, where there, there's an access issue to the court, it's far away, it's an indigent community. We had set up a satellite office there 10 years ago and we were already doing hearings um, remotely to that center. And so on, you know, on day one, when it was evident that we were going to shut down, I knew that we had to just do that in a more expansive way. And so communicated with the police department, started, created, started creating remote um, sites in those police stations with, with computers and cameras to get people to go to the stations, that's how we started out. And then we just said, we have to leverage these forms. Um, maybe everyone can just access these forms on, on, our on the guided interview platform that the court had recently acquired. And we can really leverage that tool, which I was really engaged in, engaged in developing. Um, I knew it really well. I was very involved in the interview questions. This is really generating the best project. And so I knew um, that that's where we, where we needed to head in order to, to function. And so, we leveraged that system, communicated with the vendor and added questions to the interview that would apply to COVID, such as, when can we call you back? This filing will be received after hours and the court, you know, you may not be able to come in to finish the filing. When can we call you? We need to remove the um, require, requirement to sign under oath and change it to um, signing under penalty of perjury so that people can just um, sign it without coming in and not having to swear in person. And so we just constantly, kept pivoting and, um, and we can envision this, I think, because we already had that system with the virtual hearings. Um, eventually became having all of the judges remote um, and doing the hearings from their homes. And um, it's just, it's been a moving target and um, having to be constantly adaptable like that obviously is challenging, but, um, but I think being agile and nimble and just open to continue to grow has really helped. Yeah, and I think one of the points you, you raised this when we did, talked about this earlier is it's not just about putting on a form online because when you put a form online, all of a sudden people can fill out that form outside of office hours. So that just then changes when you get the forms and then has to change the way you do staffing because now all of a sudden all you get all these forms when you open up in the morning and you've kind of got this bottleneck in the middle of the morning. So it's about really that full system of being able to, to change one part requires you to change another part and sort of keep adapting that way um, uh, in the system, which, you, which you've done, uh, been a big part in making sure that happens and it's been central to your, 
to your approach. And so Paul, sort of so the same question uh, to you a little bit, um, because what you did is sort of uh, when you, with your online form system, when you realized that wasn't going to work as well as you wanted it to, when you were tired of all those extra commercial emails, uh, you went to kind of a partner in the area, Suffolk Law School. Uh, tell me about your interaction with them and how they helped you kind of address some of the needs uh, in, in the uh, Court of Appeals there. Sure. So Unlike Ms. Blandino, we weren't starting with any sort of infrastructure in place. We tried to build it out overnight in the beginning of the pandemic. And the, our clerk just cold called the director of the Suffolk University Legal Innovation Technology Lab um, and asked if we could set up a meeting. So we did uh, have a meeting via Zoom. I think it was one of my first uh, Zoom meetings. And uh, we found out what they were doing, which was pre preparing these guided interview forms uh, for other courts within Massachusetts. Uh, but they were primarily filling, they were primarily forms that are promulgated by the court. They have directions, specific information needs to be put in. And what we were looking to do was something that was much more open-ended. That was much more about creating a motion, a, a request for relief with a statement of facts, a, a statement of uh, the procedural history case, which is so important in, in appellate work, a, a statement of their argument. And so we proposed that to these folks at, uh, at the Lit Lab, as they're called, and they were excited to partner with us, which was just great because here we were, we had almost no IT resources available because it was all said, it was all being directed at keeping the court functioning. Um, and for this, other area that uh, we were able to access their services and they've just been this amazing partner um, that we've been working with since then and expanding in creating forms. So the first one that we did uh, was a motion to stay an eviction. Um, at the time that we started the process there, I don't think that the state moratorium had actually been enacted yet, although we, we thought it was coming. Um, and we were able to build that out. We've actually been expanding with them since then uh, as as well as fine tuning that, that form. Yeah, I love that because it's a great example of the way in which the courts can use technology created in you know, sort of other situations and then with their expertise, adapt that to the needs of the court to help it uh, deal with this and in ways, and would you agree in ways that will allow you to continue to use that technology even when the COVID crisis is, has abated? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're now working on uh, expanding it to, to, to other forms, like I say, in the idea that we're, we don't ever want to go back to not having this available for people. Um, it, it's going to get us through these, these times, but is something that we're going to be able to use going forward. And we're just coming up a bit to the end of our time. So if I could just uh, talk to you both just, just very briefly um, and mention um, just if you could talk about some of the challenges or surprises that may have uh, arisen during your implement, implementation. Uh, Rita, I think at one point you described uh, even the judges themselves sometimes had more insights into their work because they're doing things remotely that they haven't before, which I, I love that little story. But if you could talk about some of those challenges, surprises even that you found uh, in, in implementing some of these technolo technology changes. Yeah, I think the challenges are just having to constantly adapt and, and pivot and, and, and be as nimble as possible to be able to respond to the changing needs um, and, and realizing and just accepting that, you know, maybe we have to just kind of start from 
scratch is not continuing to fit this circle in a box, right? Um, it just has to look different and we have to just take that on. Um, I think that that continues to be a challenge and, and continue to have the energy and the strength and the mental clarity to be able to continue to be creative. Um, but there've been lots of surprises. Um, I'm curious to see what the data will show after all of this, as far as um, access. And it, I, it seems to me like there has been uh, more access in some ways because we are um, just hearing from people and seeing people that would have had a harder time coming in person for a lot of uh, reasons, safety um, and, and other, other things that were getting in the way. Um, we're hearing that people are just feeling more comfortable coming in virtually. Our numbers and filings are, are almost at the same place they, they would have been at, in, on site at this time of the year, at the end of the year last year. So it looks like the same amount of people are coming to the court. Um, but we're noticing that there's a drop in lethality cases, right? The really serious cases, we haven't seen that many of those. So it'd be interesting to see what could be the reason for that, not necessarily access, but maybe it is domestic violence and those dynamics at play. Um, but we have noticed that perhaps training for, for judges, um, it has been interesting for them to see um, and, and, and for in domestic violence to hear someone in their home in a very vulnerable place, potentially still in danger, asking for relief from the court. Um, we, did, we had a case where um, the filer was presenting to the judge uh, what had happened and that they were in danger and they were rushing the judge through the hearing and the judge said, I have to cover these questions. Just let me go through this process. There's a, there's a series of questions and eventually the, the abuser was at the door banging at the door. And so there was this urgency of, oh, okay, this is what's happening. And so to have that lens into, into the home, um, I think it's been interesting for everyone to just kind of learn and really have a, a sense of what we're dealing with, a better sense of what we're dealing with. Um, and also just, this is something that I knew already, but to actually see the partnership between the judges and the, and the, the leaders of the court, the administrators, um, and see how, how great we can work together and what we can do when we combine those skill sets. Um, and actively work together towards something. And it's something that we did obviously every day, but in this very heightened and rushed you know, situation, um, it, it's amazing what you can do when you bring those two um, groups together with their different um, mindsets to, to kind of get something off the ground. So yeah, no, and I, I think that last point is about it. We heard that in the last panel, the importance of you know everybody working together, both uh, the, those who serve the court and the courts themselves uh, into doing this. Now, Paul, what about you? Um, any of uh, the, the lessons you learned uh, while doing this and, and maybe a little bit about how it's affected your caseload? Sure, yeah. So I, I think picking up on Rita's first point uh, about agility, that, it, that was the, definitely a lesson that we learned um, for our forward-facing, public-facing materials. We really uh, like to put out a very finished product. Um, we, you know, there's a committee, there's a subcommittee, there's a pilot project, there's a, a lot that goes into making sure that what the court puts out as its official position is uh, tested and set in stone. And working with the Lit Lab at Suffolk University, uh, they taught us uh, to be a bit more nimble and introduced us to the concept of minimum viable product, uh, which is let's get something that works that's going to get us through tomorrow and we could keep making it better and better and better as opposed to, uh, you know, I'm a fan of checking things off of a to-do list. These items will never be checked off a to-do list and that's good. That They're just going to keep becoming more useful and, and get us through. And, and one of the Things that it's going to help us get through even after the pandemic that's been a challenge for us has been the fact that we are we had one physical location 
uh, in Boston on the very eastern part of the state. And uh, there was, when we were giving people notepads, there was no way for us to people to give those to people who were out in the western part of the state and just didn't have time to get to us. So we've also learned uh, to use this technology to, to better serve the, the whole of the state. And um, as far as our caseloads, we're lucky at the moment. Um, the impending flood of eviction cases hasn't hit our court yet. Um, part of that is the combination of the moratoria, the diversion programs that are in the housing court. Um, the filings there have rebounded to pre-pandemic levels and in some cases above, but it hasn't made us to, it hasn't made its way to us yet, um, but when it does, uh, we'll be ready for it. Well, that's the time we have. I wish we had so much more time. Uh, th this uh, information that you've given us is really great. And to see the way the courts are trying to do the best they can to serve uh, the litigants in this matter, I think uh, it really inspires us all. So Rita, Paul, thank you for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Thank you for the great work that you're doing in your courts.